This is Smart Politics, and I'm your host, Anthony Arnold. Smart Politics helps you make sense of the news. The stakes in politics are real, and it's important that we think clearly about the issues that matter most. For the next few episodes, I'm going to take a slightly different approach than usual. Instead of one episode, I'm going to tell the story of the Afghanistan war in three parts, focusing on the country of Afghanistan itself, along with its history, before we arrived, then moving on to painting a picture of what the war was actually like on both sides, and finally forecasting what I think the future of Afghanistan and war looks like. Over the last 20 years, the war in Afghanistan was largely background noise. It happened someplace far away. The cost of the war, in terms of both lives and money, were things we didn't really grapple with. And the long-term consequences of our actions were only really discussed around presidential elections, fading away again when something more exciting came to our attention. We, as a country, spent those 20 years wandering through a fog, but as the Afghanistan war explodes into our collective consciousness once again, it's time to look back and begin the process of seeking out answers. How did a country that most of us can't find on a map become a place where we eventually spent $2 trillion? What does modern warfare really look like? And what does it mean for the future? By the end of this series, you'll have a deeper understanding of Afghanistan, its history, and our place in it. Let's begin. For this first episode, we're going to do a crash course on Afghanistan and take a brief tour through its history in the years and decades before we arrived. You won't become a MIDI scholar, but you will start to think about the country in a different way. It's important to keep in mind a pretty basic fact. Afghanistan existed before we got there. It had its own history, culture, and complications. While that seems like such an obvious thing to say, I'd argue that many of our future issues stem from the fact that we never stopped to consider how the people in Afghanistan felt about anything. We never tried to look at our actions through the eyes of the people most impacted. And you can't do that unless you bother to learn something about them first. The most fundamental question that needs to be understood about Afghanistan is where is it? While basic, the answer to that question is one that looms large over any other discussion. Afghanistan is surrounded by major and minor powers. The North, if you cut through about three countries first, lies Russia. But the distance between the two countries is about the same as the distance from Los Angeles to New York. Far enough away to be a journey, but not so far away that Russian influence can't be easily felt. To the East and the South lies Pakistan, India, and China. To the southwest, separated by a narrow body of water, is Saudi Arabia. And to the west, Afghanistan shares a border with Iran, with Iraq sitting just on the other side. Above all of this is the ever-present specter of American power, a modern-day empire whose influence crosses borders in an attempt to envelop the globe. So while you still may not know much about Afghanistan, and you certainly knew less before the war, in your head I'm guessing a mental map is already forming. Afghanistan sits at the center of a crossroads. Boxed in from all sides by countries with their own visions, it's a nation that has rarely been allowed to chart its own course. The geopolitical games that everyone has been playing for decades now have far more influence on the lives of the people in Afghanistan than the people itself. 
this central fact remains key in any discussion. But before we dive into the history before our war, I want to stay focused on the basics of Afghanistan for just a bit longer. Imagine California. If you can, close your eyes and really picture it. The gorgeous beaches and extensive coastlines, the hustle and bustle of L.A., the towering redwoods, the rolling farmland and the vast deserts, the snow-capped mountains. All of this natural diversity nestled up against sprawling cities. There's a reason so many people move there. Now do the same for Afghanistan. What do you picture in your head? If the only thing you know about the area is what you've seen over the last 20 years, then maybe you imagine war-torn streets, sand, and despair. And while those images aren't untrue, they're far from complete. Afghanistan has a population similar to that of California, around 40 million people. Kabul, its largest city, has a population similar to that of Los Angeles. That alone should reframe your thinking. It's not an empty place. It's a place full of people of life. And those images of desert and sand, they're no more representative of the country than a picture of the Mojave Desert would be of California. Yes, there are deserts, but there's also beautiful and lush farmland, breathtaking mountains and valleys, fields of poppies and tulips, their national flower. I grow flowers myself, as I imagine at least some of you do. There's something humanizing about the idea that in this country so far from where I am, there are gardeners tending to the same kind of flowers that I do. There's also numerous wonders created by the people. The bird market of Kabul, the Blue Mosque, the gorgeous and ancient minarets and gardens. Yes, there's devastation. But there's also a rich, vibrant past and present. Maybe you're wondering what the point of this detour is. Discussions of history and war are often intentionally abstract. We present them in the driest way possible, treating the topics as little more than a collection of facts and numbers. Those are important, but they allow us to mistake trivia for understanding. History and war happen to people. People who may not be so different from us. People who have dreams and desires of their own. History and war happen in places that, if you imagine, you can picture in your head. Places that aren't merely points on a map. So what about the history of modern Afghanistan? What was it like in the decades before we arrived? In a word, complicated. Following the events of World War I, Afghanistan broke free of British rule. The British had been periodically fighting wars in Afghanistan in an attempt to prevent the Soviet Union from gaining more power in the region. What they were really concerned about was anybody threatening their empire in India. And so Afghanistan was used to stage a proxy war. But they were weak after World War I, and Afghans defeated them, establishing themselves as an independent nation. In 1933, Zahir Shah became king, ushering in an era of reform and a 40-year stretch of peace, one that hasn't been matched since. Halfway through that stretch, in 1953, the king named his cousin, Mohammed Dawood Khan, prime minister. Unfortunately, he had some views on both the Soviet Union and Pakistan that were at odds with his king. He wanted the country to become closer to the Soviets, and he wanted the country to conquer parts of Pakistan. 
Eventually, this tension led to him quitting his role as prime minister in 1963. But in 1973, while the king was away, Daoud Khan orchestrated a coup. And with that, the long stretch of peace was shattered. Khan's rule as president didn't last long. When he began to resent the amount of influence the Soviet Union had, he started moving the country away from them, started forging closer ties to the West, which angered the Afghan Communist Party that it secretly formed in 1965. And in 1978, only five years into Khan's reign, they overthrew him in a communist coup, with Nur Mohammed Taraki becoming president. But only one year later, in 1979, internal divisions in the Communist Party led to another coup with Taraki's prime minister overthrowing him. The Soviets, worried about the country continuing to drift away from their influence, invaded, beginning the 10-year Soviet-Afghan rule. And their opponents in this war were the Mujahideen, which were backed by, among other countries, the United States. So let's pause here. There's been a lot of names and a lot of history, but the particulars aren't as important as the theme. From 1973 to 1979, there were three successful coups and the eventual outbreak of war, all of which were supported and encouraged by various foreign actors in an effort to fight their wars with each other. The Cold War is called that because the Soviet Union and the United States didn't fight each other. But we did sponsor a war in Afghanistan where the casualties on both sides were mostly Afghans. So while the war wasn't hot to us, it was to the people of Afghanistan. History changes shape considerably depending on the angle you view it from. Returning to the history of Afghanistan, we left off in 1979 with the beginning of the Soviet-Afghan War and the arrival of the Mujahideen. And there's one rebel here who matters more than the most, Muhammad Omar. Omar, like the other rebels at the time, was trained by a combination of Western money and Pakistani intelligence services. And this isn't merely speculation. In the United States, the program was known as Operation Cyclone, and it was the subject of the movie Charlie Wilson's War with Tom Hanks. There was even a New York Times article published in 1988 that unearthed the fact that over 10 years, the United States spent around $2 billion providing support to Afghan rebels, which would be around $4.5 billion in 2021. So why does Omar matter? Because when the war ended, Afghanistan was in chaos. Nearly 20 years of continual fighting backed by outside forces had left the nation broken, suffering from extreme internal divisions. And that brought about the Afghan Civil War which lasted from 1992 to 1996. Omar wanted to end that war and rid the country of what he thought was corruption due to the influence of outsiders. He did that by founding the Taliban in August of 1994. So began the Taliban's slow conquering of Afghanistan, ending in their eventual victory in 1996 which takes us to the point that most of you are probably roughly familiar with. The Taliban's desire to rid the country of outside influence would eventually turn it into a safe haven for extremists like Osama bin Laden, which would one day lead us into the start of our 20-year war. 
I can't and won't tell you exactly what conclusions to draw from any of this. History isn't nearly neat enough to give us the kinds of answers we seek, but the facts do illustrate something important. The history of Afghanistan, beginning as far back as 1973, is marked by the influence of others. For their own reasons, countries around the world kept interfering. Maybe some of their intentions were noble. Maybe they weren't. But every instance of outside interference pushed us one step closer to 9-11, a cycle of war and violence, experienced primarily by the people of Afghanistan, ended with some of those people becoming resentful. And the world, having spent time, money, and goodwill for decades, was unable to stop them. Which leads us to the next part of our story. What was our war like? Not the largely unfiltered version that we've been sold, but the brutal reality of it. That's what we'll be covering on the next episode of Smart Politics. As we step out of history from long ago, and start talking about our time there. Join me next time.